You are about to listen to a sermon from Common Ground Church in Rapid City, South Dakota. We hope to see you in person. For more information, visit commongroundcma.org. <laughs> there is, uh, well, the last few weeks have been kind of uh, up and down. There, there have been a lot of, uh, been a lot of different things that have happened. We had uh, John get up a couple weeks ago, share his testimony, which was awesome. Thank you, John, for doing that. And Justin preaching, Matt preaching. Last week we had all the. All the mission kids that got up from uh, from Mexico get up and share. Uh, we didn't get to hear from Matt, who went to went to Pine Ridge. Do you want to say anything to the peeps? Okay, he doesn't have anything prepared. Maybe later. Yeah, and uh, but there there have been a lot of things that we've covered over the last few weeks. And this week, I figured, you know what? It's just going to be really nice to kind of settle down and just uh, take a look into God's word and just wait around in in the word of God. So we're going to be in First Corinthians, of course. We're studying through First Corinthians. We're going to be in First Corinthians chapter eleven. First Corinthians chapter eleven is a very very uh, a very very familiar passage to most of us if you've grown up in an evangelical Christian church. It is the point of scripture, the part of scripture that gets referred to all of the time in instructions regarding communion. And we're going to jump into uh, we're going to jump into communion in well not, we're not going to do communion we're going to talk about the instruction on communion in just a second. But one of the things that's really fascinating to me is if you study church history at all, um, back in you know two thousand years ago when the church was just forming when the church was just starting, um, the center point of the church was not this. This thing called the pulpit. Um, the church was built a little like this, and it was a proto synagogue. It looked like a Jewish synagogue, and Jewish synagogues were square in nature. And you would sit around in a square, and somebody off in a corner would read a text, and then you would think about it. And sometimes you would even read an entire book, and then just sit there in silence and kind of dwell on it. And the center point of the of the, the focal point of the whole church that was built around the, the church was built around the focal point. It was the communion table. And communion is very different than what we experience. And and we're going to take a look at this. I think you're going to catch this a little bit when we walk through the text today. Um, But that makes me think about, you know, what is it that makes a church a church? Like, what is the essential elements of a church? What are the essential things of a church? And today that got me thinking about just essential everything. I think a lot about this stuff. This is uh, the way a philosophical mind works, and I, I like philosophy. So we're going to talk about what is the essence of certain things. So let's start off with uh, let's start off a little exercise. What do you have to have in order to make a grilled cheese? Anybody? What's the essence of a grilled cheese? Cheese, right? Otherwise, it's just a grilled, and that may be delicious depending on what you do to it. But what else do you need with a grilled cheese? Bread, okay. But if you just somebody said fire, 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 because we need burnt grilled cheese. Now uh, the bread may or may not be, you know, depending on because I don't. I want to be sensitive to all the gluten people, um, you know, because you can do grilled cheese with cauliflower, and you can do like grilled cheese with other things, or you can just flat out fry cheese, which is awesome. And if you put bacon in between two slices of fried cheese. You have a death wish. But um, anyway, so, yeah, the essential of a grilled cheese, right? Bread, cheese, fire. Bread, cheese, fire. That's what makes a grilled cheese a grilled cheese. What about a cake? 
What's the essentials of a cake? Sugar. Sugar. Somebody's like, sugar. Frosting, which sugar makes frosting. Okay, you also need eggs. You also need what else? I don't know. I don't make cakes. Flour and some some sort of chemical, right? To make it around cakes. Great. You guys are wonderful. I don't know how to make a cake. Thank you very much for being confusing. Okay, yeah. And you guys know the old illustration, right? Like if you ate one or two of those things on their own, they're pretty nasty. Like try combining flour and eggs and don't bake them and just drink them. Go ahead. Try it when you get home. I hear you. Or try even mixing sugar and eggs together. Actually, if you whip up sugar and eggs together, it becomes tasty. Frosting. Yeah, it becomes pretty amazing. Um, But yeah, there are some essential things that make a cake a cake. And if you ever missed one of those items, what happens to your cake? It turns into brownies. Yeah, it's amazing. (laughs) How about banana bread? Bananas. Bananas. Sugar. Sugar. Chocolate chips. Now, this is the great divide. Here's the great divide. Okay. Now, show of hands. Who here says chocolate chips must be in banana bread? Yes. Who says, leave, who are banana bread purists? Leave my banana bread alone. Okay, good. Just so you guys know, you are in a holy and sanctified church because the chocolate chip people outweigh the purists. So, beautiful. Beautiful thing. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, we will always outweigh you if we add chocolate chips to everything. (laughs) Fantastic. Um, Okay. And then we have uh, we have this culture, and I'm going to try not to try. I'm going to try to tread lightly. I'm not going to make fun of this. Okay. But what are the essentials of essential oils? No, bacon. Okay, that's the most essential of oils altogether. That is what it is. So that's all there is to it. Yeah, bacon oil. Thank you. Um, every <laughs> Everything has an essence to it. Everything has something essential. In fact, we even get the word essence, right? Essential from essence. What is essential to something is what is primarily its essence. And so I want to ask some questions today. One of them is we want to get to what is the essence of a church? Additionally, what is the essence of, you know, as we break that apart, what is the essence of those pieces? And then um, we're eventually going to even start off with, I think we're going to start here with, what is the essence of you? What is the essence of you? You know, if, if, we, if we break this down, right, grilled cheese, the essence of grilled cheese is bread, cheese, fire. What is the essence of you? What is the essence of a human? Carbon. Carbon. Atoms. There's actually more to it than that, and I'll show you how. Everything has an essential at the bottom of it. There's something foundational that makes up your essence. And it's something more than your face, than your hair, than your clothes, than your economic status, your race, or your gender issues, or anything like that. There, there are more, there's more to you than meets the eye. More to you. That is, that is your essentials. You might be tempted to think that your personality is at the core of your essential. I am. All that I do, all that, it's my personality, that's who I am, right? But sometimes your personality changes, right? You ever feel not quite like yourself? We even have this in common vernacular, right? My personality changed, I'm just not feeling like myself today. (laughs) Your personality can shift. And as it shifts, does that mean you're outside of your essence? Does that mean you're outside of your essential being? 
the naturalist or the humanist would say that it's your brain or your carbon or your atoms or whatever that makes up the core of your being. And although that is an essential piece of who a human is, because, and we'll get to this in just a second, because, I mean, without that, right, like you wouldn't even be. But there's more to it just that there's more to you than just your brain. Because what happens if you have a, I don't know, internal head injury or a brain surgery or something like that? Does that mean you're less you or you're not you anymore? There's something more than that to a human. See, at your core, and this is really philosophical, you can study this for a while and you'll probably go insane while you're doing it, but at your core, you are a soul slash mind, a soul and a mind, that responds to and directs a body in a very real world. Now, these all these things are very much essential to who you are. You are a soul and a mind that is attached to and responding to and directing a body in a very real world, making very real causality here. These things are the things that make up you as an essential. If you take apart any of those things, you are not you anymore. For instance, let's just take apart the world. The world's gone. Are you you anymore? Or your body's gone, are you you anymore? Or your soul's gone, are you you anymore? These are the things that make up you as in essence. Uh, Here's one way to kind of illustrate this. If I were to be dangerous with tools, which I always am, and, and I were to accidentally lop my finger off and it was just laying here on the podium, you would not look at this and go, oh, Brian had a child. There's, there's Brian Jr. Look at him. Isn't he precious? Right? It's not a different... It, I didn't just replicate or reduplicate or, or anything like that. I didn't have a... It's not my baby. Right? You would look at it and say, there's Brian and there's Brian's finger. And that is not me, and I am not it, right? So if I lopped off a chunk of myself, right, that, that would not be a secondary me or Brian part two. It's just a part of me because there's more to me than simply that. I think a lot about this stuff. <laughs> I do. Try spending a little bit in my mind. It's kind of a scary and strange place. Um, today, in 1 Corinthians, Paul is going to go on some a, a discussion that's kind of serious. It seems seriously sideways. It seems like it's a really strange conversation for him to pick up. And actually, in this passage, um, a lot of denominations and a lot of church, church history and divisions have actually been over this passage. And so there's some things that we need to talk about here to try to understand maybe what we don't know and what we do know about this passage. So that as we look at it clearly, we can begin to see what he's actually talking about. And I think what he's getting at is he's getting at the essence of what makes a Christian a Christian. And because he's talking about that, that should then show us what makes a church a church. If a church is built of Christians, of people who have had something change in their essence, then it should help us to see things pretty clearly. So we're going to jump into 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Like I said, find it in your Bible if you're not there already. And I'm just going to read the chapter. And, uh, you know, it's, it's not too long, but uh, I'm going to read the chapter and you're going to be like, what is going on here? Uh, so we're going to start with, uh, we're actually going to start with verse 2 because it picks up the discourse. So verse 2, I praise you for remembering me and everything and for holding to the teachings just as I passed them on to you. Now, I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ and the head of every woman is man and the head of every Christ is God. The head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. And every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is just as though her head were shaved. 
If a woman does not cover her head, she should have her hair cut off. And if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut or shaved off, she should cover her head. A man ought not cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. For this reason and because of the angels... What? The woman ought to have a sign of authority on her head. This is what I mean. It gets kind of sideways. And you should actually spend a lot of time studying this passage. There's so much that is in here, including that little phrase, for this reason and because of the angels. It's just fascinating. But verse 11, In the Lord, however, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman, but everything comes from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him? Jake, but then if a woman... I'm just kidding. 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 He's not even here. I can't do that to him. I lost my space here. Uh, okay, verse 15. But that if a woman has long hair, is it, her, it is her glory. For long hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor, nor do the churches of God. We're going to continue, though. In the following directives, I have no praise for you. For your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. No doubt. There have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. One remains hungry, another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we judged ourselves, we would not come under judgment. When we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined, so that we will not be condemned with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for each other. If anyone is hungry, he should eat at home, so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I will come, I will give further directions." and into some really fun stuff in chapters 12, 13, and 14. We'll be tackling in the next few weeks. And uh, this is some stuff that's going to be a lot of fun to discuss. So 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Okay, it goes a little, it gets a little weird and goes a little sideways. And this is one of those moments where the scriptures rubs up against our culture and goes, what is going on here? And some people have taken this not understanding the culture Paul's talking about and not understanding the culture we live in and have destroyed both. And this is not the way that we should understand this. And I'm going to walk through a few things that we do know about uh, about the text and some things we don't know. First, what we don't know. Here's what we don't know about the text. We don't actually know why Paul is picking this passage up. If you read through the whole thing, you'll start reading about all of these issues, about uh, about lawsuits, about divisions, about teachers, about uh, sexual identity issues and gender issues and all kinds of stuff. And then all of a sudden, Paul picks this up and is like, hair length. You're like, what? 
So we don't actually know why he's talking about this, with exception to it's probably something that either got back to him or was written to him. Remember, this is a series of letters back and forth. But here's what we do know, and this is the pretty powerful thing. Here's what we do know. What we do know is that in Corinth, in the city of Corinth, Corinth has a really big, uh, we call them guilds in the old days, but our common vernacular today would be unions. Who here is a member of a union? A couple of you are, yeah. Union proud, right? And I know some people, I used to know a lot of people in Duluth that were part of unions. And it's funny because in Duluth, everybody has Scandinavian names except for the guys that run the unions that all have Italian names. It's really strange. (laughs) Not making any commentary. I'm just saying that's the way that it is. But what we do know about this is there's a union in Corinth. And it's the guild, the union of cult prostitutes. And it's the largest in the known world at that time. The largest one. And in Corinth, there's this, uh, there's this temple to Dionysus. And Dionysus is this, uh, is this idol, this god, this, this god-goddess, actually, that has uh, both genders. And subsequently, the cults and the cult, the cult prostitutes, the, the employees that were employed at the temple for various reasons, um, they were considered priests and priestesses, um, they had all kinds of issues with gender bending. And that's what they did. Um, the, the women predominantly had shaved heads. The, the women who were part of this, part of this, uh, this, this guild or this union. They would shave their heads and they would dress like men. The men, on the other hand, would have long braided hair. And you see this all over the archaeology of, of Corinth as you study it. If You, you can look it up. Um, there's a lot, of, uh, a lot of etchings and carvings about this type of stuff. And so what was happening was they were trying to reflect their God by looking like men and being women or by being men and looking like women. And they were trying to cause all kinds, they were trying to um, embrace the deity and cause confusion, bring confusion into the culture that was already confused as it is. And so what Paul's talking about here actually has something to do with this. Now I don't know if it directly applies, but I do know what was happening if we read the book of Corinthians. What's happening is these people are struggling with selfishness. It's all about me. The church bends to me. The church obeys me. The church honors me. God is for me and he's about me and he wants... In fact, God just worships me. In fact, that's what's happening. That's what the church in Corinth was tempted with, is that they were they felt as though they were bigger than God. And so what was happening is they had no thought process whatsoever for other people. They had no thought process whatsoever for the way that people perceived them or the thoughts that they brought up or or any of the way that they dealt with other people. There was no thought whatsoever except for the thought about me. And I think this is what Paul is getting at because he's actually kind of, I think what's happening is he's kind of shocked kind of shocked that they're not at least recognizing, not at least recognizing that there are other people there and that there's a God there who made them and actually he's the one that should talk to them about their identity and about who they are and about how they dress and about what they wear and all of that type of stuff. <coughs> that they should be dealing with God and respecting one another. And that's actually at the heart of some of the essential things that make a church a church, a, a Christian group a Christian group. So we recognize that God is in charge and that we've been given and blessed with the people that are look, the people that are around you, the people that you can see out of the corner of your eye right now. Go ahead, side eye them once in a while. It's fine. Give them the creepy side eye glance. These people God has blessed you with. 
and the people around you in the culture God has blessed you with, but you also, uh, you also answer to God and He is the one who directs how we interact and how we relate with one another and with the culture around us. Now we have to be courageous enough, bold enough, and humble enough to be able to deal with that. And I think what Paul's getting at, if you put this then with the Lord's Supper instruction, is that what's happening is these people are completely selfish, completely prideful, completely selfish and completely prideful. At the core of their worship, they're selfish and they're prideful. And this just should not be. Because then Paul turns to the communion meal. And now the communion meal was different, okay? The communion meal, how that worked in Corinth, how that worked in the ancient days is you guys would all bring bread or wine, or sometimes both. You would bring bread, you would bring wine, sometimes both. And you would bring them and you'd put them in the table. It was It's our modern day potluck meal, which we've heard recently called a bring and share. I like that a lot better because bring and share is like, here, I brought this, let's share it. Potluck's like... Here's your pot. Good luck, buddy. Right? Like, hopefully you don't get botulism or anything or eat my cat hair or something, right? Like, there's, uh, yeah, but that's what's happening. It's a lot like a potluck, no, excuse me, a bring and share, right? And so we're bringing stuff together, putting it on the table. And then what happens is, stuff is, some of it is divided out to those who can't be there. The, the poor and the orphans and the widows and the ones who are locked up in jail and the prisoners and those who can't be there. It is divided out. And then the elders of the church, the deacons of the church, grab the meal and they go run it out. They're supposed to go run it out to everybody. They're supposed to go run it out to the ones who can't be there, make sure that they have a little bit, and then they come back and partake as a group together. And Paul actually talks about this, right? There's no consideration for anybody else. They just come in and they're like, wine, all right. And all of a sudden, next thing you know, they're wasted in the middle of the church service. Or they're like, yeah, bread, I love my baguettes. And then they just like take them all in and there's nothing left for the ones who can't be there. And so they're in there devouring it like locusts. Could you imagine if that was the case? If we operated that way in communion, like we we celebrate communion once a month, right? Let's just imagine that we didn't celebrate communion unless you brought bread and you brought juice or wine or whatever. And all of a sudden you put it in the middle and Josh steps up and grabs the bottle and just downs it. (laughs) Right? What do you feel at that moment? You look at Josh like, awkward. <laughs> and then you look at Josh like, I wonder how long this is going to take. And then, and then it gets crazier from there, right? But then multiply that by everybody over. And that's essentially, unfortunately, what I... Th- I mean, th- this is happening in their culture at the center point of what their church should be, which is not the pulpit, but is in fact the communion meal at the center point of that, where there should be humility, where there should be service, at the, the thing that reflects that Jesus, on the night He was betrayed, took off His garments, knelt down, washed their feet, and said, this is how you should treat one another, and this is the new covenant of my blood. At the center point of all of that, they're going, ow, oh, no, 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 no me at all. Where there should be humility and there should be service at the pinnacle of where there should be service and humility. There's gluttony. Because something changed about their something wasn't changed about their essence. Something wasn't something that should have been essentially there wasn't there. And Paul is really frustrated with this. In Paul's mind, this just shouldn't be because there's still pride and selfishness where there should be humility and service. 
And that brings us to this. And actually, all the rest of this stuff, these topics you can discuss in your refuge groups. Have fun with it. Especially Jake's refuge group. Um, but let's, uh, that, brings up the, uh, <laughs> that brings up the question of this. What is, what is the essence of a Christian? What is it that makes a Christian a Christian? What is it that makes somebody who believes in Jesus Christ and has given their life to Jesus Christ, what makes them a Christian? What is it about them that is the essential thing? And I think I have a definition up on the screen here. Basically, it's someone who has been so changed at the soul level by the power of Jesus Christ that selfishness and this selfish perspective has been removed and replaced with the Spirit of God and humble humility and sacrifice. That is the essential change that, that happens to somebody who bows their knee, who, who bends their will, who calls on the name of Jesus Christ and says, I need you to take over my life because I'm done with it. I'm done with this life. This is not mine anymore. The, the best way to illustrate this is, here, I'm going to steal these two chairs. Uh, no, I'm going to steal one chair. And I'm going to pick on some people. Okay, um, let's pick on Matt and Matt. Uh, Matt. Which one? I don't care. Come up here. Why don't you come up here? Okay, sounds good. Matt, you're in the seat. Other Matt, sit on the ground next to Matt. Here we have Matt and Matt. Okay. Hi, Matt. Yeah. So, Matt, Kanowski, how do you feel about other Matt? How do you feel about him right now? I'm above Just look him. at him. I'm above him. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> you truly are. Do you feel like smacking him in the back of the head? No. I would. Um, <laughs> I generally do whether we're standing there or sitting there or something like that, right? Yeah, you feel like you're above him, right? Now, if this is actually a posture in life for very long, you're actually going to feel a little bit more important than he is. Especially given that this is no longer a black chair, but it's a throne. You're going to sit on a throne and your lowly bearded peasant is going to sit on your left. And you're going to demand that he can do whatever he wants. Okay? Now, let's reverse. Let's reverse, reverse. Okay. Now, Matt Kanowski, how do you feel about your bearded servant, who's no longer your bearded servant? I feel like I must serve my bearded servant. I feel like I must serve him. Now, this is a kitschy, very silly way to illustrate this, but essentially what happened here is as they switch places right now, longer bearded Matt is more important than shorter bearded Matt. And if they existed like this for a long time and longer bearded Matt stayed on the throne, he would eventually start to look down upon shorter bearded Matt and treat him as such. Okay, you guys can go sit down. Thank you, thank you for being my silly illustration. But this is this is actually what happens, right? In the in the heart of the Christian, this is not my illustration. This goes centuries back. But essentially, what's happening is, as we're sitting on the throne of our life, the very first step that must happen, the very first thing that must happen, the very essential thing that makes a Christian a Christian is, you must decide: Am I a good king of my life or not? And if we look at our lives and we go, yeah, I'm doing great. And Jesus is here to support me in my ruling of my life. And we remain on that throne and Jesus sits off to our side. It will never move forward. It will never get deeper. It will never get stronger. And church and the people of God will begin to reflect the fact that we are all our own kings. We are all our own rulers. And Jesus is here to support my rule and my reign. 
And so we will take it on social media and we will yell at people and scream at the people we hate and don't like who might or might not be our brothers and sisters. We will tell them how wrong they are and how much Jesus hates them because he is here to support our agenda. This will always be the case if we are sitting on the throne. And the first step, the thing that is essential to a Christian, what makes a Christian a Christian? What is the essence of the grilled cheese of Christian, right? Like what makes a Christian a Christian is, it is somebody who has looked at it, their life and said, I am a rotten king. I am a rotten ruler. I do not do well with my life. I am going to get off the throne and I need somebody bigger than me, stronger than me, more powerful than me, more eternal than me, more wise than me. I need that person to sit on the throne and that person is Jesus Christ and Him alone. That is what makes a Christian a Christian. That is the essential element of what makes a Christian a Christian. It is the primary change of the soul that moves from the selfish king to the humble servant. That moves from the one who's sitting high and mighty, lofted up, telling Jesus to serve them, to the one who sits next to Jesus saying, how can I, how, how can I, how can I serve you? How can I ever serve you? Thank you for your grace, for allowing me into your presence. See, it's a shift away. This this primary change of the soul is a shift away from the ethic of pride and self and towards humility. And I think sadly, unfortunately, what happens is in our culture, in Christian cultures in America, what happens is we, we have danced with this idol of self so much that we have actually begun to portray and begun to talk about the fact that Jesus has a wonderful plan for your life and his job is to make your life the best life it possibly can be right now. And that's not the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ will tell you Jesus' role is to show you, to send the Holy Spirit to you, to show you your weakness, your powerlessness, your sin, and to convict you of all of that, and then to say, you can't do anything, but apart from me, you can do nothing. But as you abide in me, I will bear much fruit in you. I will bear much fruit in you. It's the primary change of the soul to say, I'm building my own fruit, I'm bearing my own fruit, I'm growing my own stuff, to saying, Jesus, I need you because apart from me, nothing but death is coming out in my life. And I think because of this, like, this, 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 this uh, lack of understanding this, this lack of really knowing this, this lack of really sit, getting off of our throne and letting Jesus on the throne, because of this, what we see is we see people, we see cultural trends like this right now, where... Regular church attendance currently is one out of every four weeks of a, of a month. That's, that's, a, that's considered a regular church attender by all of the churchy gurus. Regular involvement with a, anything outside of the church is even less. Regular giving to things like missions or the church, the church mission as a whole is like 1.8%. Like 1.8% nationwide. In fact, um, if you think about, if you, if you do the research, you'll find that Humanitarian, atheistic humanitarian, humanitarian organizations are by far having more money come into them on a routine basis than anything that has faith or Christianity behind it. Something has happened to where we have, we have begun to see that no, this, this whole thing is about serving me and I don't actually have to lay down anything. I don't have to sacrifice anything. I don't have to step off my throne. Jesus is here to establish my throne. And that is the furthest thing from the truth. See, what happens is when pride gets into our lives, when pride stays in our life, it will always, it will always begin to wreck things outside. From the middle of the worship service, to everything else in our life. 
Have you ever tried to have a conversation with a really prideful person? Today. I mean, honestly, I, I'm joking, but, well, I was joking about the today thing. Maybe you have had one today. But have you ever had to have a relationship with somebody who's super prideful and will not listen? And you love them dearly? And you want them to listen because they are going to run headlong into something that's going to harm them or kill them. And you're trying desperately out of your love to say, please stop, no, don't. And they're like, Psh, whatever, you don't even know. Pride will eventually cause our downfall and our death. Pride is what exalts us and keeps us on the throne of our life. It's pride that will result in a, a giant gold medal at the end of our life of all of our accomplishment. But it's a giant gold medal that hangs on our neck and drags us to the grave. Pride is what caused the Corinthian church to simply not care about the way their hair or their dress affected others. Pride is the thing that caused them to guzzle down bucket loads of wine in the middle of the worship service without a care or without a thought for anybody else. Pride is what, pride is what caused the Corinthians to eat the meat sacrificed to idols because who cares what anybody else thinks? I am my own ruler. I am my own master. Pride is what caused the Corinthians to take people to court, to divide over teachers, to rub their sexual freedom in people's faces. It's the self-exalting pride, the self-exalting self-adoration that we then tie to Jesus and say, God's job is to make, to establish my prideful position. It is this that is ultimately and unbelievably deadly because we cannot come to Jesus in pride. You cannot come to the cross in pride. That is not the way it works. You can only have access to Jesus through the power of our recognition of sin. See, humility is an ultimately incredibly powerful thing. Humility, the opposite of pride, is kind of the essence of actually all things. It's the essence of life. If you think about, okay, what is it that motivated God to make this place? What is it that motivated God to make this place? We serve a God who's humble and says, you know what, I want to be known by people. I want to relate with humanity. I'm going to create this place that has my beauty and my passion and, and, and my love just etched all over it so that the creatures that are here can see that and they can be, they can, they can be whole again and they can, we can have a relationship with each other again. Humility is why we have this, right? Like God sitting, you know, sitting off in, uh, off in glory somewhere. He's like, you know what? I want to be made known. Here's the deal. I'm going to etch some things into words that these guys are going to be able to read over centuries. And he actually condescended himself to be able to say, here, here's the, here's the word. I want you to know who I am. The humility of God is the thing that results in Jesus and in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. It's God saying, you know what? In fact, Philippians talks about this. Jesus considered equality with, or didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself a servant by taking on the nature of a servant, humbled himself by taking on the nature of a servant, and became obedient even to the point of death on a cross. That is what Jesus is. He's very much, he is the face of God's humility and love and service to us. And then as the gospel moves forward, Jesus takes off his clothes and he gets down on his hands and his feet and he grabs the feet of the disciple and he says, I want to wash you. I want to serve you. I'm going to care for you. I'm going to love you. I'm going to humiliate myself for you. And then he stretches out his arms on the cross and says, I'm going to die the death that I didn't deserve. A criminal's death beaten and battered and bruised with the thorns just jammed around my head and blood pouring down and people spitting on me and slapping me in the face all because God wanted to say that humility saves the world 
Not pride. Not pride. Without humility, there's no creating life. Without humility, there's no such thing as love. Without humility, there's no such thing as faith. You cannot come to Christ unless you've been humbled. There is no salvation without humility. And there is no hope without humility. So you have to be able to know and you have to be able to understand. You have to be able to admit that you don't know everything in order to hope in anything. Because if you know everything, you're going to be a cynic and you're not going to hope in anything ever. Humility is the building block of faith. Humility is the cornerstone of Christian thought. It is the Christian walk. Humility is the essence of a Christian. It's the cheese to our grilled cheese. Humility is what makes you a believer in Jesus Christ. And the funniest thing about humility is it's the one thing you cannot do yourself. You ever try to work on your humility a little bit? Fall into the trap of... I'm the most humble person I know. You ever hear somebody, you know, I've really been working on my humility a lot lately. I got a humility award the other day. Put it up on the wall, but I hid it behind a poster because I'm so humble. Right? You can try to work on your humility. You can try to work on humility. But in your efforts to be humble, you fall right back into the area of pride. So as we boil all this down and we see that the essence of a Christian, the essence of somebody who's given their life to Jesus Christ is humility. The essence of somebody who has yielded, has, has yielded the throne and has sat down at the side of Jesus saying, you take the throne. That, that motion right there, that action is humility. My simple question to you is this. Is that at your core? Is that at your core? See, I don't, I don't know what Christian background all of you, I know many of you, but I don't know what Christian background you guys have grown up in. I don't know what you have heard. I don't know how things were presented to you. I don't know how you were taught about Jesus. I don't know any of that stuff. What I do know is this. Until you know, until you see, until you have had that shift that has changed from it's my life and my plan and my order and my, my wisdom that Jesus supports, until you have shifted from that into this is Jesus' life, to command and to do whatever he wants to with. It doesn't have to make sense to me, and it doesn't matter what the cost or what the distance or anything. It doesn't matter what he calls me to, I will go and do it because he's the one that says best. Until that shift has happened, until that shift has happened, you need to ask yourself the question, do I really know Jesus? Is he really on the throne? And here's the beautiful thing is the Christian will always battle with this, right? Like, oh, I'm going to try to kick Jesus off the throne. Wait, no, that wasn't my spot all along. Oh, wait, oh, okay. The Christian will battle with this, right? This this distance between pride and humility. Most Many of you guys who are here and you're Christians, you're like, yeah, sometimes I'm humble, but most of the time I'm prideful, and it's really this, this wrestling. And I get that. Like, it's going to be a wrestling. But here's the beauty. You're wrestling with it. Those who do not know Jesus, pride and self-exaltation is the only thing that they tend to know. It's always an angle. And so I'm just going to ask you this. Are you at least even struggling with this? If you are, I will encourage you to cry out to Jesus. To come to Jesus and say, you know what, it's happened again. 
I took the throne back. I've been in charge of my life for a while and I've screwed it up and everything's falling apart and I need you, Jesus. Maybe that's where you got to be at today. Maybe you're, this is the first time you've ever even realized this and Jesus is opening your eyes to the fact that you, you've been in charge of your life all along and you've been asking Him to simply bless your efforts. Now's the time to get off the throne and come to Him and say, Jesus, I need you to take over. And as we do that, as we have humility wash over us, flood into our essence, things will begin to get right again. We will consider others. We will think about others. We will go to the furthest ends of the earth for others. We will sacrifice our time and our energy and our money for the good of others. We will dig in here or over at Jesse and Vanessa's house or something. We will do something for the good of others. We will have our heart beating to see these opportunities to apply our faith and to follow Jesus into the strangest of circumstances. That's what we call the walk of faith. So I don't know where you're at. I don't know what Jesus is doing inside of you, but I'm going to ask you today to do some business with Jesus. As 1 Corinthians 11 says, right? Like, judge yourselves correctly as you come to gather together. As you gather together, judge yourselves correctly. Because as we do that, God honors that and He disciplines those whom He loves. And He will, He will look at that and say, you know what? This is it. We're going to have to, we're going to work on this together. Do you want Jesus? If you do, we have to ditch our pride and come to Him. So let's come to Him in prayer. And then we're going to sing a song. And this is a moment to be able to pray to Him, both without music and with music. And that's all that that is. That's all that this is. This is a time of prayer to pray without music and to pray with music. And let us cry out to God and let us ask Him for His help. Uh, Jesus, we come before You. We ask that in areas where we have let pride, self-exaltation, selfishness, in areas where we've let that slide and we have taken the throne in our own life, we have taken command in our own life, Lord, in those areas, I pray that you would shine light on those areas. I know in my own life, Lord, that when I take those areas back from you, when I'm sitting in the throne of my life, I am anxious, I am worried, I am stressed, I am trying to manipulate and I'm trying to push certain things, Lord, because it's about my agenda. And I want to lay that down because this is about you and this is about what you want to do in in my life. And I pray that for my friends here, that as they analyze their own life, as they judge themselves correctly, as we all look at ourselves as though we're looking in a mirror and we ask ourselves, Are we on the throne or are you on the throne? Lord, give us eyes to see and help us to cry out to you. Asking for your help. Asking for your strength. Asking for your spirit to change us and make us a people who are not in charge of our own life, but who exalt you, who glorify you, and who ask you to be the king of our lives. Lord, we thank you for time to wait around in your word. And I pray that you would do business inside of my friends and inside of me. Start with me, Lord. Do business there. Check our hearts today, Lord, because it is absolutely essential that we would know where we stand with you. We pray all this in Jesus' name.
Thank you for listening. We hope you have been blessed. Please join us again at Common Ground Church.